Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. Through this podcast, we hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus and in living and loving like Him. True faith is discovered in the midst of painful trials. The things that seek to derail our faith are actually the things that deepen it. This radical faith is not a feeling or a philosophy. It is practical, visible, built over time, strengthened in a trial, and sustained by discipline. James paints this picture of faith and gives us the principles necessary to produce it in us all. My Monday people, what is up? Everybody feeling good? Uh, welcome to Venice Church. Uh, my name is Matt. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, I'd love to meet you. I hang out down front just at the end of every gathering. Come say hello. I'd love just to meet you in person and just say thank you for worshiping with us tonight, realizing that like it's Monday. And I'm sure there's a lot of other places you could be and a lot of other things that you could be doing. And we are honored that you would take time out of your lives to be here. And it doesn't matter if you remember my name. It doesn't matter. Like, that's not important. But our hope is that you walk away from this place believing that you had an encounter with God and those people really did love me. If we can accomplish those two things, um, then then we feel like we've done our job. Um, We're not here to impress you with good music, although it is pretty doggone good, I have to admit. Um... And if you're looking for really good preaching, you're definitely in the wrong spot. But you're going to hopefully encounter just the authentic love of God. Because in the end, like, isn't that what really we're longing for anyway? Um, Welcome to part two of a series that we're calling Tried and True. Uh, Because we believe that you don't know how true your faith is until it's tried. That the only way to know if it's true is if it's tried. We learned that last week. Like the only way that you can, true faith is always tried. Nobody is, is impressed with untested faith. And you really don't know how much faith you really have until it's tried. And it's in those moments that it's really revealed. And who in the room knows that life can be a bit trying? Half of the people in the room are honest. Because every person in the room should say a big amen. Like we all, life is trying. Life is difficult. Like, like some of y'all felt that today. Told you. I can preach this sermon better on Monday night after y'all coming through a Monday than showing up here on Sunday. Like, like, ha- like life is trying. And, and if you're not careful, like your faith, your faith won't, won't make it. Because life will throw things at you that push you to the very edges of your faith. And if you haven't done the things that we need to do in order to build the spiritual muscle necessary, when that comes, we're going to crumble. And that, that phrase has just been in my spirit as, as, I've, as we've been walking toward this series. is like we need to build spiritual muscle so that we have the strength to carry the weight of the lives that we're going to have to live. That we need spiritual muscle that when life dumps its stuff on us, that if it, so it doesn't crush us. So that we can have the strength to not only just survive, but thrive. Not only like just barely make it to the sweet kiss of death. I mean, like, thrive and make it through it with joy and passion and purpose. And that doesn't just happen. No, no muscle is built just by, like, you don't just wake up and think, oh, I got biceps. Like, you don't, it's just not the way, it, like, you have to build muscle. Come on, like, you have to build muscle in your lives. You have to build spiritual muscle. And, like, the best way to build spiritual muscle is in, to lean into the truth of God. Like, God's word is your greatest tool to build spiritual muscle. The word of God is where you go to build spiritual muscle. And so 
for the five weeks, we're going we're gonna to dive into the five chapters of the book of James. Because it, it may be my favorite book in all of the Bible. And again, I don't know that you're supposed to have a favorite book, but mine is, one of mine is James. I don't know if it's just because I relate to it or whatever, but it, it, to me, it's, it's equal, as equally powerful as it is practical. And when you read the book of James, and whenever people come to me and like, like ask me when they're new believers, when they're, when they're fresh in the faith, and they're just trying to figure this thing out, and they, they know that they need the, to read the Word of God in order to build that spiritual muscle, I always get this question, Matt, where do I start? And I told you, of course, I say Leviticus. <laughs> Those who are laughing have read the book of Leviticus. If you didn't laugh, it's because you ain't never read Leviticus. And you're like, I don't, I don't get it. But no, I don't tell them to start there. I always say the Gospel of John. Just, I, I just love John's account of the life of Jesus. He had a unique kind of relationship with Jesus. So start with the Gospel of John and then follow that with the book of James. This letter written to the early church in Jerusalem by Jesus' baby brother. And it's, it's just this powerful letter. And, and can imagine, like, like, here is James in this position where he's known Jesus his whole life, but he didn't really believe in Jesus until on the other side of the resurrection. Just a reminder that you can have an association with Jesus, but not have an allegiance to Jesus. Like, you can be near Jesus and not really know Jesus. In other words, you can grow up and go to church every Sunday and still be lost. And James has this experience. And what does it take to believe your, your older brother is who he said he was? He comes back from the dead and does everything he said he was going to do. And he finds faith and he writes this letter. And, and, so like, and, and to me, it's just so practical of what it really means to like live out our faith, to authentically and consistently live out our faith. And, and I gave us a challenge last week. Like, hey, what if we just, as the collective body of believers, just decided, all right, we're going to hit pause on all the cool devotionals that we're reading and all the other things. You can put down your Jesus calling and your She Reads Truth and all these different things that we're reading. And we're just going to dive in together into the same book of the Bible. And to one chapter a day for the five days of the week, Monday through Friday. Read chapter one Monday, chapter two Tuesday, chapter three Wednesday. Y'all get the picture? Okay. And I even said, like, let's just do it. And I'll give you Saturday off and I'll take Sunday. And we'll just dive into this word. And I even gave you a little something extra. Like, okay, if, if you're willing to do that and want me to be your accountability partner or want to just share with me what you're reading, I, I just threw my email address out, out there, matt at vintagechurch.net, M-A-T-T at vintagechurch.net. And I'll be honest with you, when I gave that out last Sunday, I really didn't know what to expect. And as of today, I have like almost 170 emails of people that are just diving into the word. And it's been really cool just to, to read these emails. And some of them are, are like really short. It's just like, Pastor Matt, I read today. Man, thank you for challenging me. It's awesome. And then, and then there's some emails that the email on chapter one was longer than the entire book of James. <laughs> and I'm scrolling, and I'm scrolling, and I'm scrolling, and I'm thinking, dear Lord, this is fantastic. And, like, I'm inspired, and, I'm, and like, I'm like, they saw things that, that I didn't see and rambled on about it for 10 pages, but it's great. <laughs> and the coolest thing, though, was, like, I got several emails that just said, said some version of, man, I've never read the Bible. Like, I've, I've, I've just never been able to do it. Like, I've grown up in church. I've got the Bible app on my phone. 
I have Bibles all over my house, but I've never really just dove into the Word myself and like, thank you for doing this, and I'm reading it, and it's coming alive. I actually had, I had one email that said, Matt, I've been coming to Vintage for about three years, and the only time I've ever read the Bible is when it's on the screens in our church. And for the first time, I'm actually diving into it for myself and realizing, like, I can do this, and God's Word can come alive. And, like, y'all don't know, man, like, how much that, and, and like, I had some people, like, I know you're tired of me sending me emails, so I'm going to keep reading, but I'm not going to keep sending you emails. And I'll rebuke you in the name of Jesus because I want the emails. Because just kind of insider information, like, being a pastor is not the easiest job in the world because it's hard to measure whether or not you're effective. Like, I can, no matter what I preach every Sunday, I don't know if, if it impacts your life at all most days. I don't know if, if, if you leave here and it changes anything in your life. It's hard, to, it's hard to know that. And last week, to read those emails every single day and just be so moved and inspired and blessed and watching people actually get hungry for God's word on a daily basis was probably the most rewarding week in ministry I've had in a really, really long time. Because here's what you need to know, like, like, and, and, and I can't, another, I kind of have an ulterior motive, because they say it takes like 21 days to build a new habit, and if I can trick you <laughs> into reading the word for 21 days, my hope is that at day 22, you'll decide, hey, I did it for 21 days, I'll just keep doing it. Because if your faith is going to be true when it's tried, you're going to need more of God's word than when you're here on the weekend. Like if the only time you're in the word is when you're here, when life throws what it's going to throw at you, you, you're not going to make it. If you're dependent on my sermons to build your spiritual muscle as strong as it needs to be, you will not be very strong. I ain't that good a preacher and I don't know of one that is. Like, you need to be in the Word of God. So thank you, and keep doing it. Like, and, and if, if you haven't done it, I know some of y'all are thinking, like, we can't email Pastor now. We done missed a week. <laughs> he will think we are a terrible Christian if we start now. I will not judge you that harshly. <laughs> All seriousness, man, if you got, share it with me. Matt at VintageChurch.net, I want to hear it. I want to read it. I want to see what God's doing in your life. And it, is so, it, it, it brought me so much joy. And just keep, keep doing it. Keep doing it. So go to your Bibles now, James chapter 2, because that's where we're going to focus tonight. James chapter 2. You can pull it up on the app and follow along with the sermon notes. You can pull it up in the YouVersion Bible app, which is a great tool. You can pull it up in an actual Bible with leather-bound pages in the whole nine yards. And I hesitated all weekend whether or not I was going to do this, but I'm going to read the entire chapter. Okay? Sometimes, sometimes we preachers think we got to talk too much, and the Word of God can stand sufficiently by itself. So let's dive in together. I'm going to read the entire, all 26 verses, James chapter 2, pick up with verse 1. You ready? You with me? Say amen. amen. James writes to the early church, My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, 
here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, uh, you go stand over there. Or sit in the floor at my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? See, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. And mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, don't you, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for, for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that his faith and his actions, they were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body is without as the body is with the, without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Father, this is your word. It stands alone. It is powerful and it is sharper than a double-edged sword. And tonight, may it penetrate the hearts of every person in this room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, James just said some really powerful, important, and convicting stuff. And right out of the gate in chapter 2, like he sets the tone for everything that he's about to say. And everything that he writes in chapter 2 is built on that very first verse. Brothers and sisters, those who claim to love, live in relationship, have Jesus as Lord. There is something that those people do not do. They do not show favoritism. That if you claim to walk with Jesus, know Jesus, live in relationship with Jesus, have a desire for Jesus to be your Lord. They don't kind of do it. They don't somewhat do it. Like this must not be present in the life of a believer. Favoritism. 
Now again, let me set the context for the original audience that would have been reading this letter by James, the baby brother of Jesus. James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And again, I remind you, like when when James pens this letter, we're just a couple decades into this thing. And the movement that Jesus started is still really, really fragile. The fact that the movement of Christianity made it out of the first century is a miracle in and within itself. We don't realize how, how touch and go it was in this point because people were being killed for their faith. As a matter of fact, in 62 AD, James himself would give his life for his faith in Jesus. This is a time when to, when to openly and outwardly express any connection or desire to follow Jesus would literally get you killed. And along with all of the external trial, they were also dealing with internal tension. Because when the church was born, if, if you go and you really read it, you don't realize like it was both amazingly beautiful and complicated. Because for the first time, People of all different walks of life were coming together with one common union, Jesus. And we, we forget about it sometimes because it's been squelched out in our own culture that the early church was powerfully and beautifully diverse. It began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And I don't think it was by coincidence or accident that when Jesus, God, decided to send the Holy Spirit, it was a time when there were people from all different nationalities and walks of life and languages. Because God was trying to say, I'm starting something new, and this new thing is going to be from every, for everybody from everywhere. And that, you know what? Again, we don't understand that in Jesus' day, this was as, as segmented and segregated a culture as has ever existed. Like, like this was a culture that, that stayed in their little pockets. And their little deep-rooted cliques. And you, and you didn't step outside of those circles. And you didn't associate with people outside of those circles. And they, they would look for reasons to kind of stay away from other people. If you, if you were different from them in any way, they would avoid you. They would, they would only move towards people that look like them and talk like them and act like them and thought like them. And even, like, if, if, if you were sick, you were cast out. If you were from a different portion, a different village, if you were Samaritan, you didn't mess with the Jew. Like, it was as segregated and segmented as a culture as, as anybody had ever seen. And that's why it was so radical what Jesus did. Because now all of a sudden, Jesus is, is stepping over the lines. Oh, you don't hang out with sinners? Oh, you're too good for that group of people? Oh, you don't like them because of where they're from and how they talk? Go read it. He hangs out with people like Zacchaeus, tax collector. He would have been a complete outcast from the rest of the Jews because he would be considered a traitor, an outsider. And he goes to his house. One day he's going to get water from a well and there's a Samaritan woman who'd been married five times and living with a man that ain't her husband. And you can, you can feel the tension if you go reading that story because notice in the story, the disciples eventually walk up on the scene and they never address the woman. Because they're in their mind, they're thinking, what 
is Jesus doing now? That is a Samaritan woman. Another part of the thing, she looks trifling. I don't know, but just from here. Like there's some things that aren't right. And Jesus, sorry. Jesus is not only sitting down having a conversation with her. He's changing her life in such a way that she goes back to her town. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus goes back and hangs out with them as well and, and leads them all into faith. And like Jesus is breaking down these barriers. He's breaking down these chains because he's trying to say, like, I'm ushering in something new. And I know you like to stay in your little group. And I know you like to stay in your little circle. And I know you like the comfort of your little clique. And you like to associate with people that look like you and talk like you and think like you. But guess what? What I'm coming and what I've come to do, it ain't just for you. And it's going to be for everybody. And if it's going to be for everybody, then like i got to start breaking down these walls. i got to start erasing these lines. And now that's happened. And Jesus has ascended. And the church is being born. And it's starting to creep back in. Where they're starting to try to draw lines again. And, and, and the one that James necessarily picks out, it says, don't show favoritism. And he says, see, what's happening is when y'all gather together, y'all treating the rich folks better than you're treating the poor folks. You're letting the poor folks come in and like, um, and, and, and you're telling them to stand in the back or to sit on the floor. And the rich folks, you're saying, come sit right here in the front. Do you tithe? <laughs> and James, see, and remember, like, James isn't writing this stuff just by happenstance. James is not just sitting around one day thinking, hmm, what should I fuss at the church about today? James is writing this stuff from his own observation. You know why James is writing about this? Because he's seen it. I can just imagine there was a time he, he goes to worship one Sunday or when they're worshiping and he's watching this happen and he's watching the poor, the poor man come in and he's being dismissed by the church, mistreated, pushed to the side. And then the rich man comes in, oh, come back this way, you got on a Rolex, let's go up here. And James is part brokenhearted and part frustrated. And he's saying, like, if we're going to be the body of Christ, then we don't draw lines. We don't draw lines of any form for any reason. Because believers, people who follow Jesus, must not show favoritism. And now don't just think, like, just because this is, he points out one flavor of it doesn't mean he's not condemning every form of it. Like, you, we don't show favoritism in any form. Like, any time that we draw a line for any reason, we draw a line because you're a different skin color, or you draw a line because you don't make as much money. We draw a line because you have a different opinion. We draw a line because you got a past that maybe makes us uncomfortable. We draw a line because you look a little bit different. We draw a line maybe because you're of a different religion. thousands of years later and what all I could think of when I read this was how relevant it still is that James had to bust the chops of the church because they were drawing lines and here we are thousands of years later and we still need to have this conversation you know how I know that because if you look around in most churches all across the country what you'll find is most of the people in it 
look like each other. And God's like, what's going on? What's happening? Why is this so? And the reason why it still looks like that in here is because there's still something wrong in here. In the hearts of the people who claim the name of Jesus, yet still continue to draw circles and lines and put people in them. And this is what James is trying to say. That selective is not sincere. Selective is not sincere. That if you are selective with your love, you are not sincere in your faith. If you are selective in your love, then you are not sincere in your faith. If you determine how you're going to love people, or you determine who gets to be loved, you determine who is worthy of your kindness, you determine who is worthy of your care, you determine who is worthy of your attention, you determine who is worthy to be in your life. Based on all this stuff that God says, that stuff don't matter to me. Not good grammar, but it's good theology. And that if you're selective in your love, you are not sincere in your faith. That he's trying to eliminate this. And, and you know, this hit me, this hit me today. So I didn't even say this yesterday. See, this is, this is how we skate this. Well, I don't hate anybody. Well, I don't hate anybody. He never says anything about hating people. He says favoritism. So, like, it's not that you feel disdain for somebody over another like like obviously that's awful but when you when you start to elevate anybody any person over another person God's saying that ain't how it works does that make sense because that's what we kind of justify it like like I just show a little bit of favoritism okay God's fine with that if you are selective in your love James is saying you are not sincere in your faith he says it clear as day my brothers and sisters and can I just even say, like, like, notice when you read the book of James this week, like I know you're going to because you promised to and you're going to email me. <laughs> There's something that just happened that, that, you, that you, you're going to miss. First one, my brothers and sisters. The fact that James even says sisters shows a shift in the paradigm. Because in Jesus' day, like, like the, the, the position of women was so pushed down, and Jesus comes along and elevates it so that when James is writing, it would have been weird for them to it, it both address both men and women. He's already, see, like, so, like, if you, if you put better seats for the fellows than you do the ladies, if you start, what, whatever line you are drawing, it's time to erase it in any form. Like, James is, it's just the fact that he is mentioning both here is intentional because he's trying to shift the paradigm as Jesus did. Amen. So, then, so then as I'm reading, I'm studying, I, I get stuck on favoritism. I'm trying to think, all right, James, like what do you really mean by this? What favoritism, favoritism, why, why, that, why that word? And trying to dig into it. And kind of I, I, wrote, I wrote down my definition of how what I, I think, especially in this context, James's meaning by favoritism. Let me just give it to you. Elevating one person over another based on prejudice for the purpose of personal gain. It says when you elevate one person over another for any reason. But what's happening here is you're elevating one person over another based on a prejudice, based on this preconceived notion. And the, per- the reason why you're making this elevation is because you believe it will benefit you. Because you want to use people. You don't want to love people. And he's saying how dangerous it is. 
But you know, one of the things that, that God had to kind of wrestle me with, because I'm, I'm, as I'm reading, I'm wrestling myself. I'm like, all right, God, where do, where do I show favoritism? Is there any favoritism in my life in any form or any fashion? Because I want you to eradicate it from my spirit. And like, and I, I know that's a bold prayer. God, reveal it to me. And so I started wrestling with this whole thing of, of favoritism and what it really, really means. And one thing that God had to clarify with me is it's not about an equal amount of attention. It's about an equal amount of value. Let me explain by the minute. Not everybody is going to get an equal amount of attention from me. My wife is going to get more attention from me than any of y'all. Aiden and Leah, my kids, they're going to get more attention from me than any of y'all. And I'm like, God, is that, fa- I'm wrestling with that. God, is that favoritism? And then I started realizing, like, like, it's not about an equal amount. It's about equal value. And I have to give a greater amount of attention to my wife and my kids because I have a different relational responsibility to them than I have to any other human on the planet. Like, my wife, my wife is more important than anybody else in this church. Matt, that's favoritism. No, that's being a good husband. That's why a lot of pastors, their marriage falls apart because they elevate the needs of their church over their own family, and that ain't going to happen to me. But this is what I, they get more attention, but here's the thing I have to realize is they are not, you are just as valuable as they are. You are just as valuable as my wife. You are just as valuable. Can you imagine how the world would change if we all saw equal value in everybody else compared to the value that we see in the people that we love most? But the reality is, I look at my baby girl and I realize that every girl is somebody's Leah. And like every girl, little girl on this planet deserves the kind of love that I want to give her. And she gets more of my attention, but every little girl is just as valuable as mine. And every, every, every person in this planet is just as valuable. See, God doesn't look at anybody and think, I love you the most. And sometimes I think we think that like, oh, God loves me more than anybody else. You realize God loves the people that you hate the most as much as he loves you. Like God loves everybody as much as he loves anybody. When you start letting that flip in your mind, it changes things. And James is saying what's happened is, guys, you, you, have, you have failed to see value in everybody. And you've elevated the value over one person over another. And God has said to you and tried to demonstrate to you, and Jesus as he lived on this planet tried to demonstrate to you that God sees value in a different way than we do and he draws them back in to this commandment look at what he says he goes back to to this to this example he says if you keep the royal law found in scripture love your neighbor as yourself you're doing right but if you show favoritism you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers and James is not trying to drag us back into the law He's not trying to drag us back to that Old Testament paradigm. Remember, he's talking to a mainly Jewish audience in this case who would have grown up with a high value on the law. And so when he says, hey, like, y'all grew up under the law, and you, you would have never thought it would be okay to break one commandment and, and just, just live out one and dismiss another. Because the same God gave them both. 
And so when you try to elevate these commandments as being these, these regulations and these rules as being more than the other, then like you're missing out. But, and then he, he references the royal law, which is James's term for what we know as the greatest commandment. See, I always wonder, like, was James kind of always out on the peripheral kind of watching Jesus? Like, before James was committed to Jesus, was he curious? Growing up in the same household, hearing the story about, yeah, yeah, pregnant by God, all this stuff, born in a stable, <laughs> walking on water. And from the background, like, is he just like, what's he going to do next? What's he going to do today? And maybe, just maybe, that day when, the, when that expert in law came up and said, Jesus, what's the greatest law in all the commandments? James is like, yeah, answer that one, dude. Like, yeah. I want to hear this. And Jesus says, the whole thing can be summed up in these two things. Because it all hinges on these two powerful principles. The first and greatest, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That all hinges and flows from those things. And now James, following Jesus, is trying to figure out what that means to really play out in his everyday life. Not just to be something that he heard years before, but something now he's trying to manifest in the application. And what he's saying is, hey guys, you, you, you act like you love God. You think you do a really good job at keeping that first part, love the Lord your God because you show up at church and because you give a little bit of money and because you serve and like you think you love God, but here you are claiming to love God but doing a terrible job at the next thing that he said. And if you think that's okay, you're kidding yourself. Oh, we love God, but we don't really like people. James said, like, no, like, you can't, you can't separate those. And if we're honest, don't we at times kind of do that? As if, like, like, because of the way we interpret what Jesus said, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Then love your neighbor as yourself. As it's like, yeah, it's a commandment, but it's a lot lower than that first thing. When perhaps maybe Jesus was saying, not love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, but love the Lord your God so that you can love your neighbor as yourself. And that they're really equal to one another and connected to one another and can't be separated from one another. And the reason why the love God part is first, because only when you love God and experience his transformative power can you become a person that actually loves your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, you're, you're, you're trying to break these things apart. And that's just not how it works. Because see, true faith, if you truly love God with everything that you have, the natural reaction, the byproduct of that faith is you will love your neighbor. Your neighbor that looks like you, your neighbor that doesn't. Your neighbor that talks like you, your neighbor that doesn't. Your neighbor that dresses like you, your neighbor that doesn't. Your neighbor that has the same political party of you, your neighbor that doesn't. Like, like your neighbor, and Jesus blew that whole neighbor thing out of the water in his own teaching when he gave that story about the good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. When you start picking and choosing who your neighbor is, that's that whole selective thing, and selective is not sincere. And what I have discovered is some really important things that I'm trying to live out. Number one is faith sees value in everyone. Yeah. 
Who is everyone? <laughs> everyone. Faith sees value in everyone. And from the onset of this movement, God has tried to strip prejudice away from our hearts. Go into Acts chapter 10 and read when, when Peter has this encounter with Cornelius. And he's supposed to go to this Gentile's house and tell him about Jesus and eat a meal that he ain't supposed to eat. And he says, I will never eat anything that's unclean. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. Go eat, boy. You get down on that barbecue sandwich and you lead him to Jesus. But you, you don't realize how powerful, we know what's having to happen. See, Peter was supposed to be this leader in the church. And in that moment, you know what it reveals? That Peter had an existing prejudice that God had to strip away before he could ever be the leader in the church that he needed him to be. And for you to be the ever be the def- effective follower of Jesus that God needs you to be, he's going to have to strip away some prejudice maybe that you don't want to admit exists. Because faith sees value in everyone. Another crazy thing, faith extends love to enemies. That's what I think. All right, Matt, like, like I get it. We, we, need to be, we need to be really nice to the good people. Yeah, because Jesus didn't come to die for the bad people. You know how I know we need to love our enemies? Because in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, love your enemies. Some things are complicated. Some things ain't. So that annoying coworker, that frustrating family member, that neighbor, that whoever. So who am I supposed to love? Yeah, them too. Them too. Love. Faith extends love to even enemies. And another power, faith, faith gives without expectation. Jesus would also say in Luke chapter 6, oh, you love those people who love you back? Oh, let me give you a golf clap. That's easy to do. But if you love the way I called you to love, the way faith drives love, it loves without expectation. It means, you know what, I'm going I'm to be kind to you even if you're not kind to me. I'm going to be respectful of you even if you're not respectful for me. That, that, that I can't see anything in Scripture that ever justifies us devaluing another human being. I can't reconcile it. And that doesn't mean at times we don't set boundaries and things like that. Don't, don't, don't hear what I ain't saying. But I can't see a, a, a justifiable reason to, to devalue another person that was created also in the image of God. Because that's what sincere faith does. It is not selective. And then he finishes really hitting us hard. That authentic is active. That authentic faith is active faith. That the natural result of us following in, falling in love with Jesus is not just that we say we love people, but we actually love people. See, it's easy to sit in here and say, Pastor, I love everybody. I love everybody. And what James is trying to say is it ain't enough for you to say you love people. You'll really know if you love people when you get the opportunity to love people and you actually seize it. Isn't that essentially what he's saying? Look at verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? This is the Christian version of somebody says, I'm hurting, I'm broke, I can't afford to even buy groceries. 
And your response is, I'll pray for you, brother. When you have the means and ability to do something about that need. See, it's not enough just to to say we love people. It's not just enough to say we value people. That whether or not we value people and love people will be seen in what we do, not just what we say. Because he says in the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied, if it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. And see now, I think we used to kind of isolate that verse. I think, yeah, like I got to do stuff to show my faith is authentic. My, my, the authenticity of my faith will be seen in my actions. And so we start acting like we love Jesus. And we, and we, have, a, and we have certain actions that we think prove it. And really, they're the actions that we think will make other people think we love Jesus. Like the act of going to church. I love Jesus. I go to church all the time. I love Jesus. I, I read my Bible. I love Jesus. K-Love is preset one on my radio. I love Jesus. I have Christian t-shirts. I love Jesus. I have, I have a cross tattooed on me. But look at Look at this statement in the context of the entire chapter. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. Those things are great. Those things are good. But maybe the truest test of your faith is seen in your treatment of others. That the target of your love is the true test of your faith. That like, okay, that's great that you do all those things. But how I'm going to really know that you love me will be seen and how you love others. And when you decide who's going to get love and who's not, who's valuable and who's not, that's not real faith. That I'm glad you do all these things, but the target of your love is the truest test of your faith. Brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? This is the most important time of our gathering every single week. Because right now is a chance for you to wrestle with what you've just heard. And you know, it's easy for you to sit here and think, that was a great message for somebody. Because I'm good, I love everybody. But can I, I want to ask you to do something for me as we prepare to worship. Will you just pray this prayer? Will you have the courage to say, God, If there is prejudice or favoritism in my spirit in any form, would you point it out and purge it from my spirit? Will you eradicate that in any form, whether it be the way somebody looks, the color of their skin, their beliefs, their bank account, their past, my experience? Like if I've allowed anything to put somebody else in this box or on this line or in this circle and it's caused me to devalue them and not treat them the way you have called me to treat people. God, expose it to my spirit and begin to do something in me that changes who I am because I know that a true follower of Jesus does not show favoritism in any form that sees value in every human being out there. What if the church, the body of Christ really began to live this out. Father, we we pray that right now your spirit would sweep over this room. That you would calm over every heart, every mind, every person in this space, God. And I pray that we would just pray that really 
courageous and scary prayer. God, if there's anything in us, favoritism in any form, would you point it out and would you begin to break those things down and free us from those mindsets? God, give us a new lens because we cannot love people the way you would until we see people the way you did. And God, I pray that you would just change our perspective. And may it begin tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage by downloading the Vintage Church app, where you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, previous podcasts, and discover ways to connect in community. You'll also have access to our deeper podcast, which is a conversational deep dive into the message from the weekend. We hope you join us again soon.